This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. So Sarah, one year ago, way back when you were first stepping into the co-host's chair for mm-hmm. Seeing and Believing, mm-hmm. we talked about another Steven Spielberg movie, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. And here we are again, a year later, talking about another Spielberg movie. Episode 360 feels like we've come full circle. I like it. I like the tie-in. Listeners, we are going to be talking about the Fablemans here on this week's episode. Steven Spielberg's looked back at his artistic genesis. We're also going to be talking about another movie musical, not directed by Steven Spielberg, but directed by Jacques Demy. That's right, listeners, we're going to be talking about The Young Girls of Rochefort on episode 360 of Seeing and Believing. Sammy, we're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. And your real train won't ever get broken. One more thing, Dolly. Let's not tell your father. It'll be our secret movie, just yours and mine. Okay? Okay. It's episode 360 of Seeing and Believing and... With Thanksgiving in the rearview mirror, Sarah, it's time to enjoy a little bit of that Christmas magic. So uh, we've got an episode that's well set up for it, I think, Mm -hmm. this week. Yeah, a lot of movie magic. Maybe not Christmas, I I don't know, a little bit of Christmas adjacent magic potentially in the first movie, but more on the movie magic in general side, which I'm definitely on board with. Yeah, so none of the, uh, you know, Miracle on 34th Street kind of stuff. It's it's too early for that anyway. This is Advent, please. That's... (laughs) True. You, you Christmas mentioned the, starts on the 25th. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the, the last episode that we uh, needed to pay proper attention to the church calendar. I yes. agree with that 100%. So we are going to be sharing two movies that are kind of quintessentially about the magic of the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be talking about your pick, Sarah, for the watch list, the young girls of Rochefort uh, yeah. in the watch list segment. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but of course, we can't do anything but start with probably arguably America's maestro of movie magic, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think he he's earned that title by this point in his career. Mm-hmm. And this new film of his acts as sort of a capstone to a long career of purveying that kind of movie magic. This latest film is The Fablemans, and it's his heavily autobiographical story of his own adolescence, which sowed the seeds of both his love for movie making and of the wonders and sorrows that so preoccupy him in most of his other films that he's made throughout his long career. Here, the Spielberg surrogate is named Sam Fableman, the son of a gifted engineer and an equally gifted musician who discovers that his gift for movie making doesn't just help him entertain and impress, but also gives him the tools to reconcile himself to the fact that the happiness and security of his childhood will inevitably give way to a life 
that is much more difficult and complex. So Sarah, this is the latest in a what's kind of become a running theme for this year, which is uh, prominent directors kind of looking back at their own artistic genesis and exploring their past through a memoirish sort of lens. Mm-hmm. So maybe to get us started with the discussion here with the Fablemans, Spielberg's obviously a giant among uh, directors in the American canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, how well do you think the Fablemans works as that sort of memoirish look back at what made Spielberg Steven Spielberg? Mm, yeah, that's such a tricky question, and it's such a tricky task for him to take on, I think. Um, I think that this is a trend that's been happening a little bit more than just this year, right? So we've got Belfast from last year, uh, directed by Kenneth Branagh. We've got Armageddon Time much more recently, which we talked about on the show. Um, I think we'll be talking about After Sun in a week or two, um, hopefully, because that's another that's kind of in this line of memoirish um, coming to understand the director as a child and coming to understand the world that they grew up in and then using that as a way to sort of provide the context for how that director is working in their art today. And uh, I'm going to say something incredibly controversial here, and I'm going to say that nobody does it like Steven Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. Like, I, I think for me, it's very easy for me to take Spielberg for granted. And I think sitting down and watching this movie and watching him put all of his very considerable directorial power to a very personal story in a way that doesn't feel like he's kind of trying to beat you over the head with his own childhood, but in a way that feels like he is thoughtfully and measuredly examining the things that made him who he is and then expressing those things using all of the considerable tools in his toolbox. It was really just a pleasure for me to sit down and watch this movie and to see him evaluate who he was as a child and then later on as a teenager and a growing and blossoming artist. Um, It was really a pleasure to watch him try to sum that up as a much older man, but without trying to put on a stamp of, I'm going to sit you all down, children, and tell you a story. Um, I don't know. It felt very natural to me in a way that I don't think I've really seen in many other memoir-ish semi-autobiographical movies. Yeah. You know, for all Spielberg's much vaunted and, and to be fair, much deserved reputation as kind of this, you know, this this blockbuster entertainer who makes either, you know, big entertaining uh, blockbusters or uh, hugely uh, expensive, very handsome prestige picks. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of one of the defining aspects of of his style is his interest in the close-up mm-hmm. like the you know the it's well-worn territory by now to point out the spielberg look kind of like the the zoom in on a face as a character looks at something off screen with mingled uh awe terror wonder whatever it is mm-hmm. um that's sort of that's the quintessential spielberg shot not explosions not all you know not adventure not et flying in front of the moon is iconic but the thing that really makes spielberg spielberg is that shot of the face. Mm-hmm. And I think the the Fablemans uh 
leans into that in its best moments. Uh, the the early sequence where we get a young Spielberg played by Matteo Zorian as uh, as a child looking at uh, a flickering image on screen and just being so utterly entranced that his 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 face is just it's not blank but there's just a very particular expression to it that's both enchanted uh awestruck maybe a little bit uh fearful uh i think that's kind of emblematic of the film as a whole i think that's what where it works the best and spielberg does that multiple times over the course of the film where he shows a, a character in close-up watching something on screen mm-hmm. uh, in very different contexts. And I think that's kind of what his statement is with this film is movies can do so much and they can mean so much. And the effect that they have, even the same film can have a different effect on different viewers depending on who they are and what their context is. And I think that's what I really like about this film. I'm not as high on it as you are. I do like that you say that it's easy to take Spielberg for granted because mm-hmm. there are moments of this film that are just sublime mm-hmm. and capture so well the magic of the movies, for lack of a better phrase, um, that I don't want to discount that. I do. I found myself coming away from this film not loving it as I had expected to, and I'm interested to talk about that with you because I know that I might be in the minority there. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a very interesting tension to be working with, with this movie in particular, especially because, um, as you mentioned with the Spielberg face, it kind of feels as though Spielberg is trying to dissect the Spielberg face a little bit, Mm. like pull it apart, understand it, see what makes it tick. Um, There is that early sequence of a young Sammy sitting in the movie theater looking awestruck up at the screen, and then immediately afterwards he goes home and he tries to recreate that experience that he was having on the screen and you get a good sense for what he's doing like experimenting with his toy trains trying to recreate a train crash that he saw in the movie the greatest show on earth and you can see the look on his face change as he comes to understand what went into creating that image and then the technical aspects behind him trying to set up his toys in order to be able to do that. And you can see the look on his face change as he goes from sort of slightly terrified awe to understanding and still being awed by the ability to recreate those images. Um, And so I think that there is a little bit of that tension of there's awe here, but there's also kind of a measured approach towards how do we recreate that awe? And then how do we come to understand that awe and then recreate those emotions for others? I think the other thing that Spielberg is very much known for is he's a very emotional filmmaker and he's very good at instilling those emotions in audiences. So I think where I'm curious um, is where is the tension for you watching this movie between what you have called the sublime versus the pieces that didn't necessarily work for you quite so well? So there's... A movie that pops up a couple of times over the course of the Fablemans, and that is John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, one of the most famous lines from that from that film uh, has to do with the tension between fact and legend and how you should, quote, print the legend. Mm-hmm. And the importance of uh, not letting uh, fact necessarily get in the way of a uh, a myth or an ecstatic truth maybe that is essential for 
us to be in some way. Um, and I think the, the tension I'm encountering with the Fablemans is I'm not sure that Spielberg, I, he definitely, that's a lodestone for him in a way. And that's something that's kind of going on in the Fablemans where it, there are probably parts of what we're seeing on screen that aren't strictly autobiographical in the sense like this actual thing happened, this these actual words were said, this person, this particular individual existed in this particular form. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the tension for me was that there seems to be some places where much more care is lavished in making in engaging sort of an act of empathetic imagination with the the fictionalized versions of real people mm-hmm. um to to understand them to in some ways imaginatively reconcile with them and there are other parts of the film that feel very much almost like it's a fantasy like it's it's almost like spielberg is making a spielberg movie about his own life and those moments i think are a little bit less satisfying for me and they mostly come in in the second half of the film where uh we get some some characters that are a little bit more broadly drawn to be to be charitable mm-hmm. and it also that's also the part of the film where the characters engage in a lot more talking about philosophizing about what movies can do and the effect that they have on them and i think the movies at strongest where it just kind of shows the movies having an effect on people rather than having them sort of try to articulate the effect that it's having because that's that's sort of Telling us the power of movies is less effective than showing us the power of the movies since we're watching a movie. Yeah. And I, I think maybe those parts of the film felt a little bit, they're just not all the way there. And it kind of marred what for me was up to that point, a much more, like I said, sublime experience. So what are some of those places where you feel as though the movie is telling a little bit more than showing? Because I feel like a lot of the sequences where... Sammy is is starting to really like grow into his own as an artist, especially as a high schooler and then beginning to get into college. Um, a lot of the telling feels as though it's him sort of working out how to problem solve. Like one of the joys of this movie was watching someone start to dig into like, what does it mean to actually be a director and what is it to figure out the logistics behind creating that image on screen? So for me, it was a little bit less about like a dichotomy between just showing what the magic of the movies are and more kind of peeling peeling back that top layer and coming to understand, well, how do you instill that emotional reaction in somebody else? And a lot of that magic for me happened not just in watching the sequences where Spielberg is really like laying on, this is the magic of the movies and I'm going to show it to you, but showing a younger version of himself, if we can say that, trying to figure out how to create that version of that magic for other people. And I think for me, the, the joy was seeing that problem solving it really feels almost like um like a literal marriage between the two tensions between the two main characters in sammy's life his mother and his father his father is extremely pragmatic and his mother is much more of an artist and it really feels as though one is sort of science embodied and then the other one is art embodied and you get that when you first meet the two of them they're about to go into a movie theater they're convincing sammy that it's a good idea to go and uh his father bert played by paul dano um 
kneels down on his level and starts to explain the science behind how a movie projector works, because that's the only way that he knows how to explain the concept to his son. And then his mother, Mitzi, played by Michelle Williams, um, says, it's a dream that you're sharing with everybody else. And the rest of the movie kind of feels like Sammy trying to synthesize those two viewpoints together. And I think at different points, he really leans sort of one way or the other before managing to find his own voice and his own way of expressing like what that art means to him as well. So it, it doesn't bother me quite as much as I think it bothers you, but I'm curious to know like some of the more specific stuff that bugged you. Right. So uh, an example of, I think where, where it does well is uh, there, there's a scene where uh, young Sammy, he's, uh, he's directing a, a short film that's set in World War II. And mm-hmm. so he's got a whole bunch of of his Eagle Scout buddies and they're, you know, they're all dressed as soldiers. And he uh he has to direct one of his friends about how to act, essentially, how to give a performance rather than just sort of be on camera. Mm-hmm. And I think th- that scene really crystallizes in a helpful way what the act of filmmaking can mean for both the the per like the the performer the person behind the camera and then the people in the audience because mm. we get to see that scene uh both while spielberg is sort of explaining it verbally to his actor we get to see spielberg filming his actor as that's happening and then we get to watch the audience watch the finished product on screen so we get to see it three times and i think that's spielberg really effectively showing the different ways that a movie can accrete meaning over the course of its uh, creation and mm. its exhibition. The part of the film that for me epitomizes the less successful aspect that I was referring to is a later scene where um, Spielberg is uh, having a face-to-face conversation with a character who up to that point, by all rights, they're enemies. They um, the, And Spielberg has been tormented by this person for much of the of the second half of the movie and we've just watched a scene uh in which Spielberg has filmed a documentary uh with his enemy kind of as a prominent figure and he makes this enemy look great mm-hmm. on camera and his enemy just can't understand why he would do that and the form that their conversation takes is a lot of them is a lot of them sort of theorizing about why Spielberg would do this or or why it would have the effect that it had, and I found that scene to be a lot of a lot of talking about the power of the movies, but we had just previously watched a scene where this enemy is watching the film and there's a uh, a reflection of himself behind him, sort of essentially with the gate the line of sight at the directed at the back of his head so we've already seen that kind of that idea of this movie is having an effect on spielberg's worst and or sammy's worst enemy mm-hmm. um we, we've seen that visually we don't really need a scene where these two characters sort of fumblingly try to articulate what it means and that's kind of what I'm talking about, where the film is just, it's trying to gild the lily too much. It's not necessary. And it comes across to me as clumsy. Oh, man. So I loved that scene. Um, although I did write down film school in five minutes while I was watching the movie, <laughs> because it does feel like two students trying to pull apart, like, why this had such an effect on them, even though they, like, one, both of them were involved in the making of it. 
Um, to me, it kind of feels like a furthering of that accretion of meaning that you were talking about with the earlier scene where Sammy is filming like a short film set in World War II. This kind of feels like the accretion of meaning that a movie gets after it's been released out further into the world. You know, you have the intent of the director and the writer and everybody else who's involved in making the movie. And then you have the creation of an attempt to uh, sort of interpret that intent and then you have the release and then after that's out there like that's gone you can't really do very much with that meaning other than what the audiences are going to bring to it and then take back from it and this kind of feels like well one it, it is a little bit of sammy like coming to understand further the power of the image that he's very clearly respected for his entire life up until this point. But it also feels almost like a conversation between critic and filmmaker, where the filmmaker says, here's this piece of art, and here's how you could interpret it, or maybe here's something that I wasn't really thinking about, I just put it in because I thought it looked really good. And then you have somebody else trying to interpret that and understand the meaning that they brought to it because they have their own background and contexts and understanding of those images that are on that screen. I don't know, like, I, I also like theory. And I also like talking about theory. So I think this scene worked for me because it felt like a very elegant way to distill that conversation in less than five minutes, personally. Um, so I don't know, like, I, I'm not sure I agree with you. Yeah, on that. I, I don't know. I'm just I didn't get any elegance from that. Scene. Okay. I, I re it really felt to me it felt to me like something that is conceptually interesting, but wasn't effectively dramatized. Hmm. I didn't buy that this conversation would happen. Hmm. Um, and the ways in which even the the theory, if you will, was being uh, articulated in dialogue, the the dialogue itself, I didn't think was hmm. interesting enough to justify being maybe a little bit dramatically unbelievable hmm. like i could i could accept it if it was sort of like okay i can like these are two teenagers sort of talking they aren't film historians or or, or critics necessarily it's fine but i didn't it, i would accept that if uh it felt like they were actual people in that scene rather than kind of Spielberg and uh, Tony Kushner, who co-wrote this film together, kind of trying to find a way to, okay, this is the big scene where, where we sort of talk about what movies can mean once they're out of the filmmaker's hands. It felt very like a scene that was meant to serve a utilitarian purpose rather than, again, the scenes where we get to just watch a film have meaning rather than be explained to us. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it also feels a little bit like an extension of that idea of print the legend, right? Like you have to have some sort of idea of, of coming to terms with the power that the image can have and the unexpected ways in which that manifests. And I think having like a five minute conversation in the hallway of a school works for me a lot better than just having it be something that happens just completely in the background. We don't even talk about it. It's just sort of floating there. I also appreciate that these two characters are most definitely still not friends, even after the exchange. Um, they, they even engage in like flipping each other off as they both leave the scene. And that also felt like a, a I don't know, for me, it felt like a solid distillation of like, there's going to be some sort of camaraderie between artist and the person viewing the art I think but then it's not always going to end up being particularly friendly or like it, it'll end up being antagonistic sometimes and that's okay too 
Yeah, I mean, and maybe this gets to my other quibble with the film. And, and mm-hmm. to be clear, these are quibbles. This isn't a full-throated denunciation of the film. They're quibbles. Mm-hmm. But having said that, uh, maybe my other quibble with the film is that the character, this bully character, feels kind of stock to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that again, when you compare it to something like the man who shot Liberty Valance, John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart are sort of they're they're two. Uh, poles in that film they 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 are kind of on the same side morally but they the way that they conceptualize themselves uh society and kind of america writ large are very different mm-hmm. and i think because in that film the two characters are so fleshed out and fully realized a scene where they come in where the, their ideas come into conflict is much more engaging to me mm-hmm. whereas in the Fablemans, we've got Sam, who is, of course, the protagonist. We understand him very well. He's the director surrogate. Mm-hmm. But the bully character is kind of just, he's very, he's, for me, I thought he was thinly sketched enough that it didn't feel like an equal meeting of minds so much as the director surrogate talking at a cardboard cutout to sort of, or, or at a sounding board, maybe, I guess, to put it a little bit less confrontationally. Mm. Um, and And I think that there's a, unfortunate tendency for many of the these minor characters to be very thinly sketched and it's disappointing partly because there are some characters particularly his parents paul dano and michelle williams's characters are so fully realized and um spielberg is able to present them flaws and all but also with such understanding Mm -hmm. um and depth that I know he's capable of doing that. And it was disappointing that that kind of care wasn't lavished on some of these other characters who are also instrumental to the film, even if they're not quite so prominent. Hmm. Do you think that it has something to do with the line between family members and people outside of the family? Because I will grant you like a lot of these other, especially once Sammy gets to high school, a lot of these other high school students do feel like they're a little bit more sketched out but i think that kind of lends itself to the lived-in quality of the fablemans as a family unit everybody's like you know they know each other very intimately they're they're family members because they they live together um some of them also feel like a little bit sketched out but that's because they're just sort of popping in and out so i'm thinking of uh uncle boris played by by judd hirsch who pops in, steals a scene talking about like the importance of art in in Sammy's life and in his own life. And he kind of looks at Sammy and says, I've got you pegged. I understand you. I know that this is something that's going to be very important for you, even though nobody else around your family like understands it. That character to me also felt very sketched out, even though he's also kind of that that one scene wonder. But I'm curious to know if like you also have that same line drawn between him and the Fablemans or Sammy's bully and the Fablemans. That was another another scene where I, I it, it again it felt like it was very much talking at the audience about hmm. what art is. I don't think it's it's. At that point in the film, I think I was still kind of like riding high on some of the the greatness of of its earlier scenes. And so I I was able to accept it. But I think as the film goes on and we get more of those scenes, it it begins to sort of become a little bit, like I I became less and less apt to forgive it the more it happened. (laughs) It also helps that Judd Hirsch is just a really interesting actor. And the particular character that he's playing, this sort of carny slash uh, uh, film crew member who earned a living sticking his head in a lion's mouth like that's 
it's colorful enough and interesting enough that uh, I was I was willing to entertain whatever he was going to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it happened to be about art, the artist, and um, the ways that uh, this tool for connection that Sam has discovered uh, can also be a sword that divides him from his family mm. that can that can alienate as easily as it can unite. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting tension to point out, particularly when we think about, you know, the kind of great artists and the sacrifices they have to make to be great. I think it's kind of, it's interesting to dig into that. It's interesting, especially to see someone like Spielberg dig into that because, again, it's so easy to pigeonhole him. It's just sort of like the easygoing guy who just wants to, wants everyone to have a good time. And so I liked watching the film dig into that a little bit deeper so that didn't bother me as much um but it again it's it's less sort of a of a problem as such with the idea of a scene like that and more just there's a a ceiling to how much of that i'm going to swallow (laughs) (laughs) so for you it sounds like you're much more interested in the in the toolbox of like the filmmaking and the camera placement like what spielberg's really good at and i don't know like maybe maybe i'm more on like the kushner side of things where the script also still works for me well it's weird because i i really like uh spielberg and kushner's other collaborations i mean i love munich that that was their first collaboration i think they're the the writerly quality of the script and spielberg's visual gifts Mm. are harmonized in uh, an incredible way i think it's one of spielberg's best films Mm. um so i was surprised in this film to be a little bit less uh happy with with the with the with the screenplay and, and the way that a lot of these um exchanges are conceptualized Mm. i don't know uh it it might just be a a personal taste thing who can say uh you did mention though the camera placement spielberg's directorial gifts and i do want to talk about that some because i think that's where this film really shines there are so many compositions in this in this picture where spielberg just the way the the location he places the camera the angle he takes and the arrangement of the characters in the frame is just so perfect (laughs) that like it's it it really goes a long way towards enhancing the the story of this young man watching his his family kind of uh slowly fracture and and pull apart Mm -hmm. not through any sort of histrionics or fireworks it just it it gradually happens and you can't stop it from happening and i think the the angles that spielberg's camera takes and the way that he uses that expressively just goes so far to make those some of the most affecting scenes in the entire film yeah i I think it would have been interesting to pair this with last week's watch list pick high and low specifically because of the blocking Mm. and the camera placement Mm -hmm. and the way that both both masters use both tools in order to just sort of convey where everybody is at emotionally and then where they are um mentally as well um i'm thinking a lot especially about the scene where Sammy's parents announced to the family that they're breaking up and all of his sisters are very clearly upset. Some of them are younger than he is. Like there's, there's a lot more back and forth between the two of them. And Sammy is just kind of off to the side. And for most of that scene, we are actually not by Sammy's side. He's kind of set off a little bit to the, into the distance. And then when we do finally join him, when the camera gets up close to his face, we can kind of see the angle with which he's watching his family. And you can see him watching a version of himself in the mirror 
walking around his family with a movie camera. And that's just such a, a terrific way of, of communicating both the emotional distance that he's kind of already putting up as sort of a guard between the loss that he he knows is impending. And then also it's just the artist's mind at work. You can't turn that sense off. The Once you know how to look at something and try to figure out how to block it and frame it in order to tell a good and interesting story, that's kind of never always going to leave you. It's, it's like riding a bike, I suppose. And so this kind of feels like, this scene to me feels like the most personal Spielberg is really going to get because mm -hmm. it feels like the adult version of himself reaching back and saying, you know what, you're, you're feeling devastated in this moment and you're still going to be able to make great art out of this moment and out of the feelings that you're getting out of this moment. I mean, how many Spielberg movies are there where there's an absent father or a difficult parental relationship? Off the top of my head, I think basically all of them. <laughs> and so this feels like a good way of him affirming that he knows some of his own directorial tics. And he's also acknowledging that this isn't something that's just a directorial tick. It's also something that that grew out of real and actual pain that he experienced, and he was still able to transform that into some beautiful art. Well, there's so many uh, places in this film where he he kind of quotes his own work. So there's there's a scene that uh, with, with his uh, uh, Boy Scout buddies that recalls the opening of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I gasped. I thought it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade for a second. Right? It, yeah. You 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 see that there. Um, there's a late film scene between Sam and his mother that recalls the the final day uh, between uh, Haley Joel Osment and his mother in mm. AI artificial intelligence. Mm. Uh, and the effect of those isn't just. Uh, sort of Spielberg saying spot the reference with his film. He's doing it to sort of show that he has, you know, with with time and distance, he has perspective on his own career. He's not blind to his own preoccupations. And I think that lends a poignancy to that scene that you mentioned where um, he's, he's kind of dissociating almost and, and watching himself film this traumatic family episode. Um, that's that's him again saying like i i know this about myself hmm. um it's a part of who i am um i'm not going to try to uh romanticize it or, or sugarcoat it in any way but it's also it's it's simply it's like these these other references to my films i've sprinkled earlier in the film it's just i i've gotten to a point in my life where i can look back and understand these moments and place them into the larger context of my artistic life. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of way of aligning his artistic life with his personal life, I think, is really an interesting part of this film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels tremendous. And it feels like something that I don't think anybody else at anybody at any... I don't feel like he could have done at any other point in his career, really. Like like you mentioned at the top, this really does feel kind of like the capstone on on his artistic life and his artistic output. And I really don't know where you go from here, honestly. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like, a, it's, it's got a quality like the Irishman did for, for Scorsese. Like, mm -hmm. how can Scorsese ever make another mob movie after the Irishman? I, yeah. I don't know how that would even, what that would even look like. Yeah, I, I have no idea how. I would love to see him try, though. Like, this is not to say that I don't ever want to watch a Spielberg again, because I really would love to see him do additional work. But at the same time, like, kind of feels like he summed everything up. 
I mean, it's a good place to be when you make a movie like this that is basically sort of a summation of his of his career uh, from its inception to uh, its end. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting film for sure. I was sorry to not like it more than I did. And I feel like we've really only just scratched the surface about this movie too. I feel like I could keep talking about it for another twenty minutes. I I would love to like for instance the the performances i really i I wish we could talk about more because there's so much to say about it but Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe we'll have to leave it there for now and throw it to our listeners i'm sure some of them have have had chance to watch this as well and it's a spielberg movie i'm sure that they all have thoughts Mm -hmm. uh listeners if you have you can always email us or tweet us you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com also tweet us at c believe pod with your thoughts and please tell kevin that he's wrong <laughs> no don't you, i mean you can do that i guess if you want but i'm not wrong i'm totally right <laughs> listeners it's up to you you'll have to you'll have to let us know who is more in the right about the fablements well we'll move on from the part where mom and dad are fighting and we'll we'll just uh move into the watchlist segment here in a little bit see if maybe we can find a little bit more common ground with that that's coming up in a second don't go anywhere welcome to the conversation the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there keeping the conversation about movies going so i do like uh the episodes where where we kind of have a little bit of a divergence of opinion especially Mm -hmm. when it's about a movie from somebody like spielberg you know already just such a a titan of the of the screen so uh i'm curious to know though what sort of question you came up with to pair with a a movie of this scale. Yeah. So I was thinking um, about formative memories involving movies. And so um, this past weekend, I tweeted out, what was the movie that made you fall in love with the movies? I was also kind of thinking about young Sammy Fableman looking up at the greatest show on earth and that being sort of the, the... inciting incident for him to become first a cinephile and then an artist in his own right. And we heard back from a few seeing and believing listeners. So um, Ron Sturry tweeted at us and said, okay, I was a young teen at the time because in our family going to a movie was a sin, but psycho, which that's a story I would love to hear a little bit more about. So Ron, please tell us about that because that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Like uh, if you're, if you're going to, you know, disobey a, a, a ban on movies psycho is quite the movie to sort of do that with it's such a great pick he did also say that a little bit later when he knew more uh citizen kane also blew him away and is a fantastic movie that could be you know the thing that sets you off on a cinephile path we also heard from chris williams who framed roger rabbit i was nine and the way humans and tunes coexisted was pure magic and then he goes on to say, it still is. It's one of the best films of the 80s. I So here's where I, I make a, a slight confession and maybe sow the seeds for a future Watchlist segment. I have not actually seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit from beginning to end. Actually, same here. What? Yeah. Okay, well, then we definitely need to watch it then. I do remember I was at a friend's house and the ending of that film was playing on TV. Traumatic. Which was all I'd seen and it scared the daylights out of me, which might've been why I was a little slow to seek it out later on. Yeah. Chris, uh, we will definitely have to report back when we do eventually catch up with who framed Roger Rabbit. We also heard from Agriff JJJ333 who said Jaws, I was eight, which 
that seems like an incredible way to go. This And this is, uh, we're two for two now on movies that I caught a glimpse of when I was too young for and that traumatized me. <laughs> Although I guess technically it wasn't the first Jaws, it was Jaws 3. But, oh no. I mean, when you see a, a corpse that's been chewed up by a shark, it doesn't, the technicalities of whether it's a sequel or the original don't matter as much to your little uh, elementary school brain. I mean, and I feel like that would put you off both Jaws, the movie, and then also just the ocean in general. So I, I feel like that's understandable. I, you know, I, I was a little bit hesitant around uh, deep water for, for a while as, as a younger kid, for sure. But I got over it eventually. So what was a movie that didn't put you off watching other movies? So, I mean, I, I liked movies growing up. I mean, like... <laughs> Lots of people. But I think if I had to pinpoint the movie that took me from being somebody who just sort of casually enjoyed films to somebody who loved movies and just wanted to immerse myself in the form, it would actually be a film that I talked about in the previous segment, Steven Spielberg's Munich. Mm. Um, in 2005, you know, I, I saw the poster for that. I was like, oh, you know, that's that sounds like an interesting film. I'll go see it. And... I can't explain why it had this effect on me, but watching that film and just the effect it had on me was like I'd been watching films through a keyhole up to that point. Mm. And watching Munich, it was like suddenly the door had been opened and I could see so much more of what was going on thematically and symbolically and uh, technically. And that was the the spark that let like, I want to learn more about what goes into a film and what, you know, what's who Spielberg learned from and, and where all this, you know, all this meaning comes from. Mm. And that's kind of like set me on the, the path to like doing Netflix film school, essentially. <laughs> Netflix film school is such a great way to, to learn about movies too. So um, true confessions, I have not seen Munich. That's one of the Spielbergs I have not caught up with. So again, future watch list pick. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, for me, I was, um, I don't know, I, I was also a little bit young for Munich at the time. At the time. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, I can actually remember the movie theater that I was in and the time it was, it would have been summer 2010 and it was Christopher Nolan's Inception, which I think I'd seen a couple of previews for, but didn't really know what it was about. So I walked in fairly cold with a couple of friends. And for me, it was, I didn't know you could do that with a movie, namely like putting together something where you could watch all of the little pieces fall together like tumblers in a lock. Nolan is a very precise filmmaker, I think. And for me, being able to see all of the pieces of the plot sort of fall together and then watch the intricate, like separate timelines start to converge was something that like, I just didn't know you could do. (laughs) And so um, Inception, I think, was the movie that I was willing to say was the greatest movie of all time (laughs) when I first saw it and then um, started to pick up on film a little bit more in the years following that. But that was the one that really made me fall in love with movies. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that that's probably true for a lot of a lot of people of a certain generation that Nolan sort of opened their eyes to the possibilities of of the filmic medium. So that's mm-hmm. a good pick. Thank you, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, listeners, uh, if you uh, want to get in on this action, share your own sort of uh, 
gateway movies as as it were uh our mailbox is always open you can email us or tweet us we've already shared that contact information it's a conversation that i I kind of love having with just anybody Mm -hmm. who loves movies just you know what was the one that got you into it you know what was your gateway it tells you a lot about a person like what movie they first started paying attention to so i would love to hear more yeah fascinating conversation for sure so that'll be end of this conversation segment we loved hearing all your feedback thanks for writing in And now we arrive at the watch list segment. Of course, this is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. Mm -hmm. We both watch it and then we talk about it. So Sarah, it was your pick this week Mm -hmm. and your pick was Jacques Demy's 1967 musical, The Young Girls of Rochefort. Mm -hmm. This uh, is a musical that takes place in the commercial port town of Rochefort over the course of an eventful weekend. A carnival has come to town along with an assortment of other visitors who romantically intersect with a handful of Rochefort residents in complex ways. These include a sailor and aspiring painter who pines for Catherine Deneuve's Delphine, despite never having seen her, (laughs) a music store owner who still carries a torch for the cafe owner who dumped him a decade ago, and an American composer played by the great Gene Kelly who runs into Delphine's sister Solange and her concerto score on the street. There's also a pair of ebullient carnies and an axe murderer, but the story is beside the point in a film that really wants to luxuriate in song, dance, and color. So there's a couple of interesting tie-ins, Sarah, with uh, mm-hmm. this film. Back Way back in episode 315, the second episode you officially co-hosted with me, mm-hmm. we were talking about West Side Story, and your recommendation at the end of that episode was the young girls of Rochefort. No less than Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Right, exactly. (laughs) So we've come full circle. We're back to Spielberg. We're back to the young girls of Rochefort. And you you are on record as saying that you want to be buried in this movie's color palette. Oh, yeah. So let's start with that. What is it about this film's sensory pleasures that just you love so much it's just so over the top like the it's it's technicolor hollywood but with a french twist and i don't know like it it feels very familiar and very strange all at the same time and i don't know if that's because i'm just not as familiar with like french cityscapes or something like that but you just get all of these um carnival workers wearing basically like nothing but khakis and then very ridiculously bright shirts underneath their khaki jackets and pants. I didn't know khakis could look that good, honestly. <laughs> um, but you you just get these these lovely pops of color and all of these characters who are just so joyful and, um, I don't know, ebullient, I think might be the best word for it. Um, because they're all just happy to be alive and out and enjoying a weekend and a fair. And even though some of them definitely have to work all through the weekend, they're still going to sing and do a lot of high kicks about it. Um, And they're going to do that in this port town with just incredibly deep colors. Like I'm I'm basically, (laughs) I'm, I'm unable to talk about it because I love them so much. There is a very specific deep color blue that shows up on a couple of the doorways in one of the street shots in this movie that is, it's, deep dark it's not navy it's it's basically the most pure color blue i i can think of like it is the bluest blue and every time i see that color i kind of catch my breath 
and the movie doesn't even stop to let you catch your breath because it's off on to the next adventure, the next person leaping, the next person dancing and singing about how they either just got their heart broken or they're going to go and break somebody else's heart. And that just feels like the level of joy and movie magic that I would like to sort of live in. It's so over the top and all of the characters are so over the top about it that I can't help but believe it and be swept up in it. I mean, getting swept up in it is sort of this movie's uh, reason for being, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's just nothing exists in this film except the, the moment, right? And I, I think kind of, if there is a theme that this movie is exploring and i'm using i'm doing air quotes here because uh the exploring themes is sort of like <laughs> that's way too stuffy for a movie like young girls of Rush War, right mm -hmm. but if it is if it does have a theme it's kind of about gather your roses while ye may it's about the the joy of being alive uh for most of the characters it's about the joy of just being young and having that sense of possibility there are things you can do there are there's a world out there waiting for you. There's people out there waiting for you. Uh, you get to experience them. Mm -hmm. that, and that's wonderful. So and did you get swept up in it? I did. Yes. I, um, I still think that I might prefer the Umbrellas of Cherbourg a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, but I really liked this film as well. Um, and I, I think it works better than Umbrellas at, just as a musical. I think the music is better. Mm -hmm. the, there are a lot of just great, great songs in this film. Um, and it, it's, it's a movie that's a lot easier to sort of like sit down with and, and have fun with. Like it, it's an apt pairing, I guess, with the Fablemans in that way, because it feels a lot more movie magic-y than, than Umbrellas does just cause you, you can sit down and it's just, it goes down easy. It's a lot of fun and it's just got some, like you were trying to articulate, it's got these <laughs> sensuous pleasures that mm -hmm. are really just, you you can't do anything but experience them. Talking about them, like ex describing the the color blue is nothing next to sitting down and just seeing it pop out, pop out to you, like blooming at you from the screen. Mm -hmm. That's something this movie offers that you can't really get in any other medium or any other way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I think not to put too fine a point on it, but this does also feel like a movie that is about movie magic without ever once bringing up the concept of movies itself. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like sort of a, a French commentary and then reappropriation on the Hollywood musical all the way down to having Gene Kelly just show up suddenly out of the blue. Greatest surprise for me of this movie, by the way. I had no idea he was in this film. Oh, that makes me so happy. And, and so when he popped up, I was like, wait, is that... That's Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly is in this movie? And it was it was wonderful. I was so glad that I went in completely blind. Yeah, that makes me really happy that he shows up. There's, I feel like there's a lot of just one-off surprises and kind of tossed off things in this movie. And it doesn't feel like they're being tossed off because it's careless, per se. It feels as though the movie is just interested in living in the moment. So suddenly you're going to get Gene Kelly. And why wouldn't you have Gene Kelly? It's a musical. And then suddenly you're going to get an axe murderer subplot. Because why not have an axe murderer subplot? We, we have to talk. Can we talk a little bit about that axe murderer? Yeah. That was the one part of the film where I, I, it was a little bit of a head scratcher for me. And I, I, I would like you to talk to me about it because... <laughs> I don't know that I understand why it's in this movie. I mean, to be fair, I don't either. Okay. But I, I was just wondering if I was missing something because I, I don't is, think yeah. you're missing anything. I think that it's just it might be fun to have some random person get 
brutally murdered on the side of town and we're all going to sing about it. I genuinely don't understand why that's there. And I think for me, the blasé attitude with which basically everybody else around the incident treats it kind of makes me enjoy it just that much a little bit more because it feels like the movie is leaning so deeply into its live-in-the-moment carefree nature that even something awful happening can't be happening forever. It's just happening in the moment and we're going to toss off a few lines about it and sing about how somebody got killed with an axe. And then we're going to move on with our lives because there are more important things to do, like falling in love for strangers in the middle of the street (laughs) and sending complete strangers to go pick up your child from school. Like, I I, I don't get the mental, like processes that go on with any of these characters in this movie (laughs) i did enjoy how the cafe owner just encounters these two literal carnies and says hey do you want to pick up my eight-year-old son from school it'll be fine i'm sure (laughs) i i enjoyed that and i think that's kind of like there's an openness and trustingness like there aren't any points in this movie where uh one character regards another with serious suspicion right mm-hmm. like there's there there's scenes where you know one character tells another like i don't like you or you know i don't want to be with you anymore but there's never a scene where you get the sense that these characters expect another character to harm them mm. irrevocably like even even the um the music shop owner who's been jilted, mm-hmm. he doesn't regard the fact that he's been jilted with bitterness or with anger. Um, he mostly regards it with wistfulness, like, ah, oh, she's the one I got away. I still love her, though, wherever she is. Mm-hmm. And he's and there, there's a slight melancholy to him, but it's it doesn't you don't get the sense that he's sort of the walking wounded. Mm-hmm. Love is in this film isn't something that wounds it's something it's something to just enjoy when it arrives and if it leaves that's kind of a bummer but it's okay too because life goes on um and there's a way that uh demi kind of encapsulates this so we there's a, a scene where two characters are kind of walking down a sidewalk and the camera is is tracking with them and they're uh shot uh up against a you know the wall of a building and that we're, we're focused in on their conversation their conversation concludes and one of them continues walking down the sidewalk and demi's camera uh pans to the right and kind of goes up on on a crane i think and we see that uh behind them just out of frame for that entire conversation the entire town is just dancing in the street yes and that's that's i loved that shot because it it kind of encapsulates the spirit of Whatever concerns are going on in this little corner of the world, there's an entire other world out there and it's beautiful. Mm. And that's that's just a lovely sentiment. It definitely is. And also like the easiest way, I think, to to break up of all time in this movie. <laughs> like we're just going to dance about it and or maybe sing about it. I do think that there is a little bit of a touch of jealousy in one of the characters. So Catherine Deneuve's Delphine goes and breaks up with her boyfriend at the very beginning of the film. And he's kind of a, a jealous... Um, art gallery owner <laughs> who makes his art by shooting balloons full of paint yeah Great and detail that it's, it's a fantastic detail and i think the gun feels very out of place in this movie because it just it doesn't seem like this is a world where guns should even necessarily exist and as far as this movie has antagonists which it doesn't really i, I think the gallery owner is just about as close as you can get because he seems to be 
the character who might be able to put all of the pieces together and help all of these people find their other halves. And he's just not going to do it. He's just going to sort of stonewall it or say like, well, because you want to get together with my ex, I'm not going to give you any information that you need. But even then, it feels still very like live in the moment and almost blasé because he knows that his ex is gone and he's never really going to be able to get her back either. Like there's there's no hard feelings, even though there may be a little bit of a, a twinge of jealousy. Right. The, he he isn't a wicked person. He's kind of he's kind of a jerk, but he he's not there's nothing seriously bad about him. In fact, I, I was I was kind of expecting like, I guess he's the axe murderer because <laughs> he's the only character who is even remotely negatively portrayed mm-hmm. in the film. And uh he no, it's it's fine. He's just he's just kind of a jerk. The actual axe murderer was this nice old man who is just sort of hanging out at the cafe and it was a crime of passion, I guess. Which yeah. is uh, again it's I guess that that's kind of the hint of darkness that is Demi's way maybe of suggesting that, you know, some people do uh, love does kind of drive them a little bit round the bend and that exists in the world, but we're not going to dwell on it. Yeah. And at the same time, the movie is still willing to draw attention to the fact that these are real people with real concerns and cares Um, And there's a lot of talk about virtue and vice and about bohemian attitudes towards getting together and then breaking up with each other, like over and over again. I think when we first meet the Carnies and they begin to sing like their introductory song, like this is us and this is our deal, they talk about how they live on the road and they're referred to as Carnies and they're going to just sort of own that title and they will take what the breeze gives them and then they will give it away just as easily. Um, And they kind of treat the breakup that they both undergo in the middle of the movie with kind of that very similar attitude. And I'm a little bit baffled by this because the rest of the characters in the movie kind of feel as though they think that these carnies are a little bit more carefree than them, but at the same time, like the world is so heightened and and so, I don't know, blasé about all of that, that it doesn't even really feel like they're out of place in this town, if that makes any sense. But at the same time, there is still this undercurrent of um, what if we aren't presentable to the outside world? Like the two sisters at the heart of this movie um, – comment on like the dresses that they have to wear when they're when they're singing a song to promote the wares that the carnies have have brought into town with them and then they just sort of leave it at that afterwards and then after they've done their performance the carnies sort of like try to ask them out and the sisters immediately shut that down as well but a lot of the dialogue that goes along with it kind of feels like we're protecting our virtue or we are going to be carefree with our virtue. And at the same, like, I don't know, it's it's something that I have a little bit of a hard time squaring and maybe that's the French read on like Hollywood musical that isn't quite translating for me necessarily. It, it felt really French to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that might just be, it might just be a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels very much like that scene you're talking about where the two carnies proposition the two sisters. It's just sort of like, they, they are very open, like, you know, we, we are in love with you. We mostly just want to sleep with you though. Yeah. And, and you know, they're, they're very frank about it. And the sister's like, oh, I mean, it's nice to kiss you, but we, no. Like, yeah. We've we, heard that line we, before. We've, we've gotten, yeah, exactly. And again, no hard feelings. <laughs> like we're just really open about you. You really want to sleep with us and we are not interested at all in you. And 
it's okay. Like life goes on yeah. and life does go on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm interested to, to get your thoughts also on, um, the way that the, the camera acts in this film. Mm. Um, one thing that I noticed, I, I mean, we've, talked about ozu a few times on on the show already and i make no secret that i really like ozu and i particularly like a common device of his which is to uh frame a character in the exact center of the frame uh straight on and have them look directly into the camera uh during rather than doing a more conventional shot reverse shot over the shoulder Mm -hmm. uh way of shooting conversations and that technique is employed by Demi as well, particularly in a late scene between the cafe owner and the person who later ends up being the axe murderer, (laughs) which is, which again is a little bit of a head scratcher for me, but I do think it's interesting that uh, it's very common for characters in this film to look directly at the camera Mm -hmm. when singing rather than look at each other. And I'm kind of curious to know what you make of that. It kind of feels like uh, an additional level of that, you know, heightened reality that you get in musicals where this is just a world where people will break out into dance and song. And I think in this case, it feels as though the direct address to camera is we're being very open and honest with our feelings. So here is a song about it. And we're going to include you, the audience, into like into the act of of expressing those feelings and emotions directly. Like there is kind of a closed offness that you get from some musical numbers where you can tell that what's happening is occurring on a soundstage and we're very pointedly not looking at the camera or engaging in the camera. This feels a little bit more open, maybe a little bit more generous even because it is an invitation for the audience to come on that emotional journey as well and to feel it directly because we're having a conversation about our feelings. We're not just singing about them, if that makes sense. That's I, I like that read. And I think that that might be the antidote for a lot of people who think they don't like movie musicals because mm. of the artifice, because of the heart on its sleeve emotion feeling uh, unrealistic or or phony in a way. But I think... Because Demi is sort of he is very open about that that artifice by having characters look directly on the camera, which almost never happens in a in a more conventional film. That kind of openness does sort of it shatters any sort of separation that a fourth wall might make between audience and film, and it does sort of invite the audience into the experience and and engage with the film on its own terms rather than trying to engage with it as a more conventional narrative experience. Mm-hmm. And I kind of I kind of dig that as as somebody who uh is more of a musical skeptic than some people I know, but I'm I may be coming around to it a little bit more. I do like how Demi uses that uh device of looking into the camera to get around that a little bit, maybe get under Uh, the viewer's defenses a little bit more. It's very playful. And I know this is a little bit later than like the French New Wave moment, but Demi and his partner, Agnes Varda, both came out of that. And I think that there's a couple of other like moments and pieces that feel like they're being open and experimental and they're trying to, you know, play with the form a little bit more than just following general genre conventions. And you also get a couple of nods to that in the dialogue as well. Like one of the sisters 
answers the door to the carnies and says, oh, look, it's Jules and Jim. I, I enjoyed that touch myself. It's, it's a terrific <laughs> little reference. Yeah, it's, it's a terrific little reference. And it feels like it's, you know, it's being playful without being irreverent. But at the same time, you know, there's there's that recognition of there's this whole other film history. And we're going to say, yes, that's over there and that's very serious and all. But we're here to have fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The and, and the Jules and Jim reference, I also, you know, I enjoyed that a lot. And that to me reinforced the... The, the the very French view of relationships where mm. in Jules and Jim, there there's kind of this, it's, it's a love triangle sort of, but it's not a love triangle where there's a, a tension or a jealousy uh, between the, the different participants. It's, it's more that kind of a say la vie kind mm. of like sometimes, you know, there, there is this, you know, sometimes things don't work out the way you want, or sometimes the person you love also loves somebody else as much as they love you. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of deal with that. And it, there's, it's, it's not a, a nihilistic way of, it's quite the opposite of a nihilistic view of, of, of life where it's sort of like, Oh, we're, we're all just, you know, animals or, 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 you know, life is, is meaningless except the moment. So eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Mm -hmm. It's more like eat, drink and be merry because eating, drinking and being merry is a great way to show your joy, express your joy (laughs) in the gift of life that you've been given. And I think that that's something that even if you're not necessarily on board with hedonism as an ethos, Mm -hmm. maybe you can get on board it, board with it as somebody who's a created being by a God who loves us and gives us good things. Yeah, exactly. Like it feels like a much more generous way. Like it's almost like love and relationships is not being a zero sum game. Like there's, there's plenty of, I don't know, generosity to go around and joy to go around. And so even if you don't necessarily get what you want, you can be like Monsieur Dame who runs the music store and say, well, she got away but I got to love her for a little while and maybe I'll get another chance if I ever run into her again. And I just, I love that. And the great thing is this movie does give them other chances. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, at the very last minute when you think that Delphine and her, you know, her warrior poet, painter, (laughs) uh, paramour just barely missed each other and they're not going to get together. Uh, Her truck just happens to pick him up as a hitchhiker Mm -hmm. later on, and they drive off essentially into the sunset. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets a happy ending, and that's just – it's a balm to the soul, I guess, sometimes. So I'm glad it was a balm. Yeah. It's a a good time, and I'm I'm glad that that you introduced me to it. Uh, It's magic of the movies. Yeah. There's there's some magic in this movie. We'll bring you around on musicals again eventually too. I look forward to that. That does it for this week's watch list segment, listeners. If you've had a chance to see Young Girls of Rochefort and have any thoughts about its view of romance or what the axe murder part is all about, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> uh, I would especially love to hear from you about that that last bit. Um, you can email us or tweet us as we've already mentioned. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for the watch list segment for 2022. So mm-hmm. listeners, we are going to be releasing episodes up through Chris- the week of Christmas. Um, but because there's so much stuff coming out here towards the end of the year in terms of just important movies, movies that are going to get awards attention, stuff that we're just excited to see, mm-hmm. we're going to put the watch list segment on hold and really focus in on reviewing two new releases 
with every December episode. So next week, we've got a pretty good episode lined up. We're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's The Whale Mm -hmm. and pairing that with Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And those are two directors that I'm kind of in the bag for. So I'm really looking forward to that, even though I haven't seen those films yet. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation we're going to have about both of those because, yeah, it's two very distinct and very different viewpoints, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it'll be I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, so that's what's coming up on next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.